Welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I am joined by Kevin John Simon, or Major Simon, as we'll call him today. Welcome to the show. Nice to see you, Bart. Yeah, I'm really, really honored to have you on the show. Um, You run the Mitch Mitchell Fan Club, which I saw your booth at the Music City Drum Show, and it's just great. It's wonderful what you're doing. Thank you very much. I'm glad you saw it. It's uh, pretty epic. It is pretty epic. That's a good way to put it. And he's a pretty epic drummer who I think is very well known, but I think is also not as much of a household name. So I hope today we can uh, add to that a little bit more. I think the people who know, know. I mean, people know Jimmy, but um, let's give Mitch Mitchell some some of the uh, spotlight that he deserves. And um, I also want to give a spotlight to uh, my friend online, Maximilian Ludwig, or I call him Max, um, for suggesting this episode to me. Um, He recommended Mitch Mitchell about a year ago, and I wrote it down and then kind of forgot about it. And then uh, I obviously saw your booth and uh, made it happen. So thank you to Max. Why don't we jump right in here? And um, can you take us back to the beginning of Mitch Mitchell's life? Sure. Mitch was born in in um, England, July 9th, 1946, and uh, was born in a, a town called Ailing in, in an area called Middlesex. His parents uh, was Phyllis and dad was Jack Mitchell. And interestingly enough, during World War One and World War Two, his dad was in the British Royal Engineers and they called his dad was also called Mitch. Hmm. And then he showed tremendous talent from the time he was a little kid. And as a teenager, he was already starring in a BBC show called Jennings at School. And uh, so by the time Mitch was 12 years old, he was known throughout all the United Kingdom wow. as an actor before he was even a drummer. You know, that's, a, he, that's yeah. interesting to me because I was Googling, you know, bringing up the, which I know uh, if you're like in school, they say, don't use Wikipedia, but it's a good, it's a good baseline thing. And, and it's funny because it says drummer and child star and, um, I really didn't know that. And and so to back up a little bit, though, first, because I said, you know, obviously we know him as Mitch Mitchell, but his name is John Graham Mitchell. And the name Mitch is obviously kind of playing off of his last name, correct? Yes, it is. And like I said, his dad also. Yes. Okay, cool. Now, all right. Explain the TV show a little bit more. So he was was he he wasn't drumming with that, right? He was just being. An no, actor. no. Well, it, we, it has to go back to his uh, in kindergarten, garden is. His parents sent him to the Corona Academy in London, which is a kindergarten through high school school for the gifted in every area, music, dance. Um, his daughter was, was, went to that same school. Uh, arts, he took classes in tap dancing, fencing, hmm. um, oratory. And it was a very, very rigorous school. Wow. Uh, for, ex- for example, um, in the, the song, The Wall, we don't need no education. All those little kids are from Corona Academy. <laughs> oh, man. Yep. Wow. Aisha Mitchell, Jim, uh, Mitch's daughter, was singing in that group. So he had, had an extensive arts background. His parents recognized this from the time he was a child. They never anticipated him becoming a, a musician hmm. because by the time the kid's a teenager, he's well-known. He's sort of like the Harry Potter of England by the <laughs> 1960s. That's unbelievable. And um, uh, so you said, what was the name of the show that he was on? It was called Jennings at School. And what, what was it? it, it well, it, it was set at a, at a private boarding school for the very wealthy. And these little kids would do various things to get them in trouble. And, you know, it was sort of like a, a situational comedy. He, was, he played a very obstinate kid. 
that kind of got on everybody's nerves, which, which is, you know, um, um, and at the academy too, at Corona, Corona Academy, that was his character. He was uh, always he was a, a prankster and a jokester, but a lot of people didn't take it. Think it was very funny. Hmm. He thought it was a riot. Of course, <laughs> I'm sure. Do you know? Okay, so as we're going along that timeline with this, um, which I just it, that's mind blowing off the bat, just to know about his his child star background, which. I mean, as we know, historically, a lot of times child stars can run into a lot of problems because um, of that fame and their, you know, maybe that's I don't know if that's maybe more of an American thing where they get mixed up with drugs and all that stuff. But was he pretty well uh, balanced? You know what I mean? In that time or was he I know he was a jokester and a prankster, but was he getting into some trouble or was he pretty, you know, not really. His, his, his dad was very strict. Okay. His parents were very strict. Royal engineers, world war one and world war two British army. Yeah. You, you know, you didn't, you didn't mess with Jack. No, that'll do it. <laughs> now, when did he start drumming? Was this, uh, along the same timeline? By about 11, he became interested in drums and he began working on, on weekends at, Jim Marshall, who became famous for Marshall Amplifiers uh, uh, store, they say he took a few lessons, but uh, from Jim Marshall. But in reality, he d he took lessons from a studio. We've now know this that we this has recently come to light. He took lessons from a studio jazz drummer in London named Ronnie Stevenson. He studied for at least a year. So the technical facility he had was was not obtained by. Uh, watching or taking a couple lessons from a music shop owner, it's yeah. clear that he had really good good training, rudimentally and, and yeah. that sort of thing. And you got to think too that like his this uh, schooling that is like a performance arts school, which like you said is really rigorous, has to like I don't know. It's like if you learn the piano, it helps you on every other instrument. It's like he's he's being taught discipline. So he's eleven. He got his drum set. You said he's clearly. Uh, Mitch is just drawn to the drums, like like many of us. Um, can you, on the timeline, about what year was that that he would have gotten his drum set? Because because Mitch was born on uh, July 9th, nineteen forty six, right? So would that have been about fifty seven? Uh, no, he he actually got drums. I think about 1960, 61. Because oh, he okay. he was actually in a, a actual he had a leading role in a, in a role in a film. So he was still involved in motion pictures and and of course television. I would say about 1960, 61. By 62, he's playing he's playing in a band. So yeah, was that as a drummer? I think oh man, that's great. It's a step up. But like, do you think maybe was it seen by his parents as like? I don't know. Was it a move in the right direction to become a rock and roll drummer, or his parents were were appalled that he would leave this uh, six, very successful television career that was really only starting when he said, "I want to go switch to music." They 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 couldn't believe it. They really pleaded with him. You know, mm. you're you've got a career, and this other musical career is is touch and go. Uh, it's a bit uh, dodgy, as the British would say, it might not happen. So his parents were out of the blue. He decided to do this. They they did not take it very positively. Yeah, but could, yeah. of course we know that results were very, very favorable. Yeah, but um, hindsight is twenty twenty, as we know. So I could see that risk of like, you know, Mitch or John, as his mom might call him. Like, come on, what mm -hmm. are you thinking? You need to do this. You have such a good thing going on. I'm sure he was making some pretty good money. 
as a kid. More money than his, more money than his parents. Wow. Oh my gosh. I got to try and find some of those. Uh, I'm sure there's videos out there of him acting, but you know, maybe not though. I remember watching, um, I think it was a Monty Python like documentary and they talked about how the BBC would just destroy and record over old tapes. So, um, have you seen old footage? There's a few brief clips of Jennings at school. Uh, I've seen it at the Mitch Mitchell fan club because we have people that post from all over the place. And then there is a British film called Bottoms Up, which you can find if you look hard enough. 1960, it was kind of a comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there isn't, there, like you said, there isn't a lot, uh, you know, that survives all those years. Yeah. Because it's videotape and they, like you said, they reuse it. Yeah. Because they're not thinking, oh, these, you know, like, again, these Monty Python guys, who cares? No one's going to want to watch this in, in 50 years, which I think they were uh, they were wrong. But um, all right. So he's he's started his musical career then. Was there a point where he was a working drummer and a working actor and he was doing all this stuff at the same time? Or did it kind of just hard switch to, to the other? That's a very good question. No, he made a clean break. Uh, from acting hmm. and then uh, at about the same time of course we know he discovers Elvin Jones and Tony Williams and he's really really getting into into bebop and uh, that those guys become his heroes for the, actually for the rest of his life so hmm. while while the typical rock act in London is listening to Elmore James and blues guys Mitch is listening to the hardcore beboppers wow very interesting so he was in you said he was born in Ealing, correct? Ealing? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Was this, uh, I feel like a lot of these towns like that, I, I've been to um, England a few times, but there's so many, it's like, you know, there's a lot of different little areas. Was this a pretty industrial town or was it pretty happening area, you know? It's considered a district of, of London. We would call it a suburb gotcha. of West London. Okay. So he's he's relatively close. That just kind of puts it into perspective of, uh, you know, oh, no, he's seven hours, you know, <laughs> east no, or something. Seven, seven and a half miles from central London. Oh, wow. Okay. So he's pretty close there. So he's he's kind of a bus ride or so from, from the heart exactly. of things. Okay. Or the tube, as they call it. Now, the, the county is Middlesex. It's like a county. Yep. In the United States. Got so it. So it's Middlesex County, then the little town. All right. So he's um, he's a drummer. He's going full force. He's going with it. Now, t- go ahead and take it away from there. What what uh, where do things because we're in, if you're in 60 or 61, it's not too far off from from him <laughs> joining one of the biggest bands in history, I guess. Well, he's picking he's meeting people his own age. Uh, um, Marshall's son is a saxophone player. They, they have a little, like a, I guess we would call it a uh, garage band. But then he, he gradually gets picked up for touring and session work. Um, he's, none of the bands he's, uh, he is in are really hugely famous, but they're all gigging. Now, the Travelers is an interesting band because there's a picture of Mitch playing as his, um, really his first professional kid, um, a premier. And uh, it shows him, he, lo- he looks like he's about 14. Hmm. And each guy's got a T for travelers under uh, under embraced and uh, emblazoned under under coats. It, it's it's pretty pretty hokey, but yeah. that was a big deal. And he, and it, it is, now this is about the same time the British the Beatles are the Beatles are playing in Hamburg and the Beatles are doing that stuff. Sure, but he so he's he's right in that Beatles UK yes. invasion pre invasion crowd of people. Some bands are going to make it big. Some bands will not. Members of some of these bands go on to join the Animals. Um, uh, you know other bands but hmm. they're all in this is sort of the entry level I, that's what, exactly what it is these are entry level bands for young teenagers before they really make it big time 
Yeah, but man, talk about just the right time with the right place with the right accent. You know, I mean, it's it's just uh, uh, so. I mean, if this is like sixty sixty one, the Beatles are in Hamburg. I mean, things are about to blow up and get exactly. worldwide attention, especially from the American audiences. Um, what was so? You said he was playing premiere first. Uh, yes, he he was playing premiere, but then but. It's it's a w- interesting fact that not a lot of people are not aware of it. But when he was in uh, his first really g- big a- band that actually had an album uh, was a, the Riot Squad. Hmm. He was playing a small f- a four piece uh, sort of a bebop black black cortex Ludwig fourteen inch bass drum hmm. small toms. And there is there if you if also but from the Riot Squad he goes he joins Georgie Fame and the Blue Fames. They're the first band that actually has a, a hit record. And there is video of Mitch playing this this small black Ludwig kit. Wow. And that's pre Ringo, right? By by that time it's sixty five. Oh, I see. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. So he's trying to look like Ringo. He's playing Ludwig, but you can clearly see he's he's a cool jazzer there. He, does, yeah. he doesn't look like the typical typical rock drummer at all. So if you if you Google it, you'll find Mitch Mitchell in uh, Georgia Fame and the Blue Fames, uh, mm-hmm. a t- television show, probably Ready Steady Go, which was a very popular show in London at that time. Gotcha. Now you you said a jazzer. I mean, it's we've talked about it a lot on this show, but it's uh, it's 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 always worth noting that you know guys like Mitch Mitchell and Bonham and these guys, their idols were jazz guys, like you said, Elvin and Tony were um, Mitch's you know legend. They're his heroes. It's He's got a pretty jazzy style. I would say even more than some of the other rock guys of the era. Um, he he clearly appreciated and studied and respected jazz. Well, the, re- the that's an excellent point. And the thing is, he has a technical facility to improvise. He's not going to just play. He can play g- good time. We know he can play good time. And in some of those bands, he was told. Uh, like like shut up and play your guitar, shut up and play the hi hat, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he he has he he has a facility. I, I would say so. You know what it is? He has a technical vocabulary yeah. to go off into this explosive jazz thing, which the typical rock drummer simply didn't have the chops to do. Yeah, Mitch had that. Yeah. So no, that's a very good point. Um, was he a big partier? Was he, cause you know, you're, you're starting to get a lot of attention. Like you said, you're probably on an, you know, you're working with big bands. You're playing out all the time. Mitch was not that extreme, but he was an extrovert all of his life. And, um, uh, kind of the life of the party. He wasn't the guy in a, in a corner, uh, mumbling to himself and not really paying attention. <laughs> he was the, the life of the party. Got and that's, a, that's a, this acting extrovert thing. Yeah. In fact, uh, in many times, he kind of sh- shows up Jimmy, you know, and not in interviews, but in a, in a, in a social thing, uh, you know, people would naturally gravitate towards him. Jimmy was very shy, Jimmy Hendrix and Noel Redding, but Mitch wasn't. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, to be an actor, you're, you're out there. You want people looking at you, um, which kind of puts it all into perspective there. So, um, all right, well, let's get back on the timeline here and, and move forward there. So he's a working drummer. He's famous. I think we were in the mid sixties ish there with Georgie fame and the blue flames, um, coming right up on his big break, I guess you could say. So, um, keep it going. The, the interesting thing is, Jimmy had arrived in in London in in Oct- very early October, and Mitch, in his amazing book, which you can find, it's called Inside the Experience, finds out that just about every studio guy he knows is going to, to audition for some 
for, from some for some black bloke blues guy. And he said, it's just about everybody I know was going to audition. And he said, finally, I got a call. And he, he went over to um, a small basement, October 6th, and auditioned the first time. They told him, don't call us, we'll call you. And he, he said, that, well, I guess nothing's going to come of this. Hmm. And they, they auditioned several more drummers, and then he got a call back. Interesting. And in a call back, as we know, it's a famous uh, Ainsley Dunbar and Mitch, and it, apparently – the, the legend is it was decided for, for Mitch over a towing cost. Wow. So that's October 6, 1966. And Jimmy, it's virtually unknown in England. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, so I'm not in any way really, I guess, uh, I, I love Jimi Hendrix like everyone else does, but I don't really know too much about his, um, you know, his biography in, the, in those. I know, you know, paratrooper and playing with James Brown, right? Yep. But he was unknown in England, like you said. So this was just an open kind of call. And I guess Mitch took a why not kind of thing. And, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. But Jimmy was lucky to make uh, $50 a week in New York. Yeah. And he came, to, he came to, to London with a Qatar, a Burberry coat, and a visa. He had, he had absolutely nothing. Within mm. a month, this guy's playing at the at the in, in at the at the uh, in Paris. He's playing. It's it's unbelievable. unbelievable. It's the most explosive success story in history. And I, I don't think Mitch. He says in his book he had no idea it would take off that way. He liked J- Jimmy because Jimmy knew all the styles. In other words, he said I I I played those styles with various British bands, but this guy really had this down. Yeah. He could be Curtis Mayfield. He could be BB King. And he was just—he loved that music, and and uh, that's why they, they became a, you know, such a bonded friendship there, because he's hear, yeah. hearing the real deal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's—they're uh, both students of the musicians who came before them, and obviously studied a lot and and played a lot. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, okay, so he joins, he wins the toy costs, which boy, that's lucky. <laughs> the history could have really gone another way. I mean, this changed Mitch's life. Correct. It changed his life, but like I said, he he underestimated what was what was going to happen. Um, this, uh, let's see, the, he didn't. I, you know, how do I say it nicely? He didn't take it seriously because he, this is just another act, and and he because he'd not um, he underestimated because he'd been in these other acts that came and gone. You play for six months, suddenly you're fired. You got fired by the riot squad. They fired the whole, the band. Broke up. Management sure. just. You know, so he was, you know, when you're a gigging drummer and you're playing in all these various bands tr- trying to eke out a living, suddenly you get this big chance. Well, that's not how it appeared to him at first. It was just, well, I'll just try this for his famous expression. I'll give it a, I'll give it a play for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely had a he, he gave it a play. That's for sure. So, um, yeah, what's the timeline of all this? I mean, let's let's dig into the, the Hendrix stuff. OK, by by October 5th. Um, well, let's see. The, the, by October 5th, Jimmy, Mitch, and Dole, I, pl- I play together for the first time. They have a gig on Thursday the 13th in France. So they're already, you know, then they play the Olympia in Paris, the, this big, huge theater for, where they have Grand Opera. Mm-hmm. So he goes from nothing. In 12 days, they're playing the Olympia in Paris. How does <laughs> that, just- that happen? I mean, it, obviously, it's just it catches on, but... I mean, so you said Jimmy is unknown when he gets there. Does it just like one gig? It goes from a 500 seater to a 2000 to a 10,000. Exactly. Wow. And that's largely the influence of Chaz Chandler, who was the bass player for the animals. Chaz has all the connections. 
mm-hmm. in the industry. And uh, he, they know the right people, and they, and they quickly, Chaz realized this stuff, this, nobody's ever seen anything like this, not, not in London. And then they, then they start gigging the local uh, clubs, the jazz clubs in, in downtown London. They'd go to Scotch of St. James, the Big Apple Club in Munich, Germany, Bag of Nails in Soho, uh, it, you know, TikTok club, they, they start hitting these small clubs. Many of them are actually jazz clubs. Hmm. And the word st- starts getting out, this, th- you've got to see this guy. People are who, you know. Eventually, the Beatles are there sitting down there and, uh, l- uh, you know, uh, cross-legged on the, on, the, on the ground watching this guy. <laughs> wow. And it was so, it happened so quickly. It was it was an, a musical explosion, really. It was, we know he's revolutionary, but the, I don't know if any musician or act that went from absolute obscurity to huge success with less than a month. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really doesn't really happen. You know, an interesting just kind of thought starter is that Mitch as a child star and just being in TV shows and movies, you want to be you want to be the center of attention and you want to be the star and you want the camera on you. But as a drummer, you're in the back. Um, you're rarely the star, the singer. I mean, it, obviously it happens in bands that we know about with singing drummers and stuff, but he is now sitting behind one of the most popular musicians in history who was always going to be the star that, that has to kind of be a big switch from, from growing up as a, um, as a, as a child actor and a star in movies and stuff. I wonder how that, that worked with his psyche, you know? Well, that's very interesting because because positionally on stage, when the experience played television shows, Mitch was on a platform. But in a typical live gig, Mitch is ground level between uh, Jimmy and Noel Redding on the same level and right yeah. in the middle. They're, they're online, which is interesting because it's not the drummer hiding back, back on the platform back there. It's almost like a little jazz club. So they sure. kept that form. It's like, like what do you mean? Does, they're playing for 20,000 people and Mitch is on the ground next to Jimmy? Yep. All the way through 1970. Yeah, interesting. It's very much a trio. So, so they like um, they were friends, right? I mean, did so Jimmy? He must have kind of really clung to these guys as like a hey, I'm not from here. You know, I'm from Seattle. Like, I don't, I don't know anyone here. So they were really a tight knit band, right? The trio. They, they were tight knit band, but personally, uh, Jimmy. And Mitch became very close. I mean, it's not an exaggeration or hype to say they were. It was it was a like a brotherhood. They were very very close yeah. because they both loved the jam. They, they they time was irrelevant to them. I mean, they'd be out have a, a banded a gig gig started at eight. It was over at ten. They go to jazz clubs till four o'clock in the morning. They just naturally clicked that way. Mm. Uh, whereas the bass player Noel Redding was more conventional time wise. And that eventually led to his uh, leaving the band in '69, but we'll, we can talk about that later. So yeah. they, they, you know, they were both uh, they were both jammers. That's really what it is. They were jammers, mm-hmm. and um, totally. that's, that's it. And they were a team. They were a team. No matter where they where they went, Mitch would go with get, get a cab, go out to uh, um, the, the Black Hawk Hotel in, in in Chicago and jam till two in the morning. But they were a team. They really were a team. That's awesome. Not everyone's that lucky to be in a band where, especially as a drummer, you know, where you're pulled up with one of the biggest guitarists, musicians in, in history. Um, so that's awesome. What about his personal life at this time? Well, how old would he be in that, you know? Okay. What, the first time uh, they, they became 
Um, he, the first album came out, and Mitch was only 19 years old. Are you experienced? Mitch was still a teenager. Jeez. And when he, when he played at, um, I think he had just turned 20 when they played at Monterey Pop in Monterey, California, 67. So he was he was very, very young. Oh now, Jimmy God. was four years older, I believe four years older than Mitch. These guys are so young. It's unbelievable to think of the success that gets thrown on these young people. And uh, that's a lot to to take on. Maybe in that case, his experience of some success as a kid helped him navigate through this um, without getting too overwhelmed and, you know, like... Like he's kind of been there a little bit in a way. That that's a very good point. He he keeps his poise, uh, in spite of all this. Uh, uh, what's the word? Unconventional, uh, totally unconventional lifestyle. Now I'm looking at the schedule here. You know, be before Monterey is strictly clubs. It's they mm -hmm. played about 75 clubs, and then two shows, two shows, University of York, Grace Club, mostly bars, like a bar band. Wow. Yeah. And similar to the Beatles, you know, the Beatles, uh, uh, I think George Harrison said, well, you know, they, they say we became famous. So I said, well, we, we had played in clubs and bars for three years before anybody even knew who we were. Yeah. So the, Hend the Hendrix experience is similar musically, is, but, of course, you, you have management. It's all, that's the interesting thing. From day one, there's a huge management team. I mean, they have very successful management from the very beginning behind them. Of course, that goes south later on. But... Um, it's, it's very similar to the police, the band that was, they were playing clubs all over England, even though uh, uh, they hadn't even recorded a record hmm. for over a year because they had good management. Miles Copeland, Stuart Copeland's brother, yeah, ran sure. pretty, much, pretty much ran that band. But they're getting the gigging experience, gigging experience, you're, you, and, then, and then eventually you go on, on, your, on your tour of cities. But hmm. the, you make it or break it in those small clubs, and that's what, that's what the, those guys did for the first um, seven months. Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. I'm sure he's just, I'm sure he's loving it as a young guy. Was, was he, um, dating celebrities and stuff like that kind of in his personal life or was, you know, things like that tabloids? I, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think he, he really didn't have time for that. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, the schedule was, you know, it's a schedule that a teenager could survive, but <laughs> you know, all, sometimes <laughs> up all night, you know, yeah, getting on a plane with four hours sleep it it was it was very grueling of course it gets worse as they get into the touring years mm -hmm. but the clubbing clubbing scene is you know these start playing at 10 or 11 sometimes midnight yeah you, you condition yourself to do it you know what i mean you you get into that that mode of doing it um all right well then let's talk about his gear i think it's cool to kind of pop in with some gear as we go symbols hardware let's break down his his you know early hendrix gear Okay, as I mentioned, he he had a, his first, I guess you call it professional kit, was a small pr a premier kit, mm -hmm. but he always uh, always used a Ludwig uh, 400 snare drum, regardless of what he was playing. Sure, um, there are pictures with him on playing mostly premier in, in, in nineteen sixty sixty six. The first Hendrix kit was a premier kit, um, he, he, so. I guess he was experimenting. Uh, the interesting thing about this is most people don't know this. There was a Rogers drum factory uh, in a suburb of, of, of West London. So people say, wait a minute, why, 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 why Bonham and, and Mitch and, and Ringo using Rogers pieces or in the case of Dave, Dave Clark from Dave Clark 5 playing Rogers sets? There was an actual Rogers factory where yeah. they were making Rogers stuff. So you had access in the music store to stands, snares, parts. So... Uh, 
the first set I mentioned, the very first set before he was in Hendricks was a small Ludwig, which he which he kept as it's it was recently sold by his girlfriend in London. But the first Hendricks set was the the famous um, a tiger stripe uh, five uh, six five piece like a buddy rich configuration, mm-hmm. one tom up, two two floor uh, two toms down. Yeah, yep. And then it, with Rogers, all Rogers moaning hardware. Premier stance. Yep. The Rogers hardware was pretty common at the time with a lot of the guys because I, you know, it seems like Rogers kind of had it figured out. Really, the the hardware of how to make it work and not, you know, make it more adjustable and all that stuff. So that's that's pretty common. Um, well, the, well, the the Roger, Here's another thing that people don't realize: the Rogers swivelmatic stand, they're called, mm-hmm. um, um, was was a tri- was a very primitive early tripod. All the other stands made by Ludwig, the Ludwig fourteen hundred, and a and a, and a premier were flat base stands, very low to the ground. Slight puff of wind, boom! There goes your stand. But the the Rogers had a small stand of swan, famous swan neck legs, but it was a tripod. And that's really why Mitch used it because it was a little bit higher off the ground. Now, the tri- tripod legs are very small, but it was it was in, more stable than any of the other brands because everybody else had right on the ground on the floor. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And the whole English Rogers thing. I know um, I've done a Rogers episode and we kind of talked about it, but that's a whole um, that's just an interesting kind of side note about the English Rogers. And, and there's always these little side roads that you can go down <laughs> with these. Uh, but it makes sense with with distribution. And and I always kind of think you got to remember, too, with Ludwig, obviously, this is post Ringo where it had exploded. But that's an import over there. I mean, it makes perfect sense. He's playing Premier because that's an English brand. But, um, yeah. you know, you'd think he'd be like Heyman or something like that that's over there. Uh, but yeah, so to him to have a Ludwig kit was not as easy as it is nowadays to just order it. And there's kits everywhere. Um, so it's it's an import. Well, and, and these these young guys gravitated to, to Ludwig because of the um, the glamour of it, Amer- an American drum set. Of course, once Ringo uh, starts playing Ludwig, every every beat band, every invasion band, pretty much switches to Ludwig. Sure. But it's the glamour of it, very hard to, ex- uh, to get, an ex- extremely expensive. A typical uh, young person could never afford a Ludwig kit. Yeah, and they were usually bought for the drummer by management. The rail mount uh, Ludwig tom holder is a very very iffy thing if mm-hmm. you travel on the road i was on the road in the 60s with one they eventually they strip out you can tie them as much as you want and they still move so mm-hmm. um that's why so many of these british hacks put the tom on a snare on a snare stand because it the, the ludwig tom mount was was it was simply not reliable yeah. so they would drill a shell for a rogers swivelmatic and that's not going anywhere it's being it's being set with with three spindles for the drum key what they call set it and forget it yeah so sure yeah i uh, man there's nothing worse than when you're playing and your tom starts to just like drop or a cymbal stand starts to fall i mean it's just like oh god what am i gonna do in this situation but that's that's what unites us is having to deal with uh these gear problems right well, when I when I uh, I had I'd taught history for thirty two years and we t- retired, I got myself a, a a present for for surviving that long. I, I basically got an exact copy of the other kid I played. It's a teenager, and my very first gig with an eighty five piece concert band, I hit the tom, boom, one time, and it went it went completely flat. Oh boy, <laughs> takes you back, so, doesn't it? That's that's what you wanted oh, yeah. is to have that yeah. that uh, heart wrenching moment of <laughs> in front of everyone losing your 
losing your gear. Wow. During the break, I just want to mention during the break, I took the, a little, a little, a uh, splash symbol L arm and I uh, moved it up and put the rim of the nine by 13 on the lip of that, of that thumb screw and that's the only way it stayed there it's universal to have to deal with these issues and drummers are very resourceful in uh coming up with solutions practical solutions because you know we've all been there equipment breakdowns what are we going to do that's exactly right i mean that's it's a good life lesson this episode is brought to you by dream symbols dream symbols is launching the tasting tour 2021 There's going to be tons of cool symbols, members of the Dream Team on site, and the recycling program will be in effect all day at these various awesome music stores around the country. October 16th, Rhythm Traders at Portland, Oregon, and November 6th, they'll be at Rupp Strums in Denver, Colorado. So go out and check it out if Dream will be in your town. All right, so let's get on the timeline here. So Hendrix is huge. He has blown up. I mean... Mitch is probably starting to realize this is more than just a a, a gig, more than just being a, a jobber, you know, working with different acts. He's cemented in, you know, one of the biggest bands in, in history at that point. What what happens from there? Well, Mitch makes his first big mistake career-wise because he doesn't expect the band to really do anything. He signs an agreement that he's going to be paid as a sideman. And that is a a bad decision, business decision that will haunt him for the next four years. Mm. But we'll get into that. Because basically, it's like playing at your local Holiday Inn. I'm a sideband with a band. I'm not the leader. And where do I sign? Yeah. And then uh, uh, didn't realize uh, that what a mistake he'd made. And it, because he he thought it was a side act. Mm. Man, what was – all right, so – what would be the alternative? Obviously, would be signing and 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 just explain that a little more. Like, what is he signing for? Who for management for Jimmy's management? How how did that all work? Okay, he's signing an agreement with um, Chas Chandler, who is eventually bought out by the infamous Michael Jeffrey. That he is going to get a, a, a small amount for each gig as a sideband, but he also eventually. I know it's hard to believe he gets power of attorney to Michael Jeffrey's lawyers. Hmm. And then he gets no com- commission for, for concert sales, no, no percentage on, on, on promotional material, and, and no percentage on records, which is the worst business deal you can possibly think of. So yeah. he's playing at clubs and they're making 30 grand a night and he's being paid like a, like a local musician at your holiday and down the street. Man, I mean, so the alternative would have been saying, uh, you know, no, I'm a big part of this band. And then he would have gotten probably not 33, 33, 33 point, whatever. It would have been a higher percentage. So it would have been a more of a, uh, a cut. Now on that though, I, we should ask the question, was he contributing to the writing, to the development of the songs? You know, I mean, what was his level of involvement with that stuff? The drum parts, of course, officially no, but but sure. by the t- by the release of "Cry of Love," which is Hendrix's last studio album, it says on the back of the album, "Produced by Mitch Mitch uh, Eddie Kramer and Mitch Mitchell." He never mm. got official pr- producing credits until Jimmy's final album. Gotcha. Okay, so he so he didn't have he he doesn't he has no official role as as uh, a ranger or producer in any capacity on the first three albums. Yeah, which I'm sure he did, but man, you don't, one signature can really, uh, in a lot of drummers' cases, you think of like Ginger Baker and stuff, obviously, can really uh, negatively affect 
I guess the rest of your life that can kind of haunt you of what you what could have been. Of course, Jimmy made this, Jimmy made this same mistake. We 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 know Jimmy would sign anything, you know, and um. So uh, t- uh, by 1967, they're doing they're doing a gig. They're making eighteen twenty thousand uh, dollars. Jimmy gets a thousand bucks. He gives he keeps four hundred six hundred. Mitch he gives one hundred fifty and Noel one hundred fifty dollars. But management keeps twelve thousand in cash, right. which is right. being sent out of the country. You know, I mean, it's just it's unbelievable. So Jeez. Jimmy made the same problems. I mean, he, he was Jimmy was so desperate for success. It's where do I sign? Where do I sign? Yeah. But, you know, how things might have changed if he did get too caught up and they said, you know what, kid, this isn't worth it. Uh, You're not doing what we say. Who knows what would have happened? Maybe it would have hindered things if he did care more and and didn't just sign and and get that opportunity in that one place, which, Uh you know, it's tough. Well, well, several several times management didn't like Mitch's attitude. And uh, would complain to Jimmy, and Jimmy said, "No, he's he's with me. Hmm. You know, it's it's a, my my call. Um, he stay. He, I don't care what you do. Uh, this band, Mitch Mitch is my drummer, and Mitch was his drummer, of course, the entire time. Yeah. You know, did did Jimmy ever? Uh, this is such a specific thing that I'm sure probably isn't documented, but I wonder if Jimmy did did he ever comment or watch or see any of Mitch's early child acting it's just kind of funny to think of Jimi hendrix sitting there watching mitch mitchell you know act in this little bad boy role on a in a in a private school <laughs> you know I that, wonder what he thought that's about a it. very good question it's it's possible because those are uh, those were probably being shown on bbc reruns in the early sure. 60s but um i'll tell you something for of, uh and you and your listeners um jimmy was in awe of mitch, mitch on so many levels as a drummer a performer a celebrity um, he was, he was from the time he saw him, he was, uh, he was really, really impressed on just about every capacity. Like I also mentioned, Mitch was outgoing and they had, and they had this nonstop, um, comic comedy act between the two. And, you know, there's a famous scene where they're going to do a, a show in Paris on, uh, uh, and, um, they go on, on a television set, Jimmy walks by Mitch and he goes, Kring! smashes a cymbal with the end of his guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Miss kind of reaches towards him, and Jimmy looks at him, and <laughs> so they had this—they had this thing going on. Also, uh, Mitch was a horrific practical joker, oh, that's and would funny. drive them crazy. But we can talk about that a little bit later. I'll give you—I'll give you one example. Sure. One concert before this, after the sound check, he tuned all the guitars up a half step, <laughs> including the bass. Oh man! Wow, so, that'd be weird. <laughs> I'm sure, yep. Jimmy. Wow. Jeez. All right. So I have a question too, though, um, personally about him. Were his parents now like approving of this decision then? I mean, um, this because this timeline isn't that far. It wasn't like, okay, 20 years later, he finally made it. I mean, this is all pretty close to his, you know, we're, we're all we're talking about all within like, you know, under a decade. Did his parents realize that this was working out? Yes. By, by, by the time Mitch is 20, he has a gold record unbelievable crazy which the family still has yeah and uh they they of course they it, he succeeded beyond anyone's wildest dreams including mitch of, of course but the family was very proud they of course they, they realized it, yep uh mitch made the, john made the right decision here mm-hmm. beyond anyone's dreams yeah yeah very cool okay that's good to know so 
Um, all right, let's carry on on the timeline here because honestly, I mean, it's so sad about how young Jimi Hendrix was when he died and how, you know, bright his star burned and then kind of uh, just ended. So there's not that long of a period when he was in one of the biggest bands in, in history. But um, so, yeah, keep going there. Okay, so the, 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 big, the next big opportunity is they get signed to, to track records, which was created by Chaz Chandler and one of the managers of the Rolling Stones. And they released, uh, Hendrix's first single is Hey Joe. And that become very successful. Mm-hmm. And from a series, the, the problem with this is they're, since they're constantly playing, constantly gigging like any band, getting them into recording studio was very difficult. And they would only be there a few hours. So it took quite a long time uh, to release the first album. They'd been there for months and months and months. First album didn't come out until 67. Um, and recording it snippets here and there, snippets here and there. So the album comes out. It's, of course, it's, a, it's an enormous hit, but it's pretty much known in Europe and England. Mm-hmm. And, and a, a guy named Phillips, who's a member of the Mamas and Papas, is organizing the Monterey Pop Festival. And he invites Paul McCartney to be there with the Beatles. And Paul says, no, I can't. There's no way we can do it. We're too, too busy right now. But I know of a guitar player, an act. And Paul said, if, you're, if you're, your festival is purported to be the best of the new musical talent, you have to have a guy named Jimmy, the Jimmy Hendrix Experience. Of course, uh, this guy Phillips goes, who? The Jimmy Hendrix Experience. You don't know about it? He says, no, who are they? He said, well, you'll find out. Yeah. So they, they booked <laughs> Hendrix's experience. Now, of course, the who were there in, 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 in Monterey, California, and it's Saturday, June 17, 67. They go on. They're the final act. And they, t- they burn that house down. Of course, Jimmy, of course, infamously, infamously lets, uh, lights his guitar on, on fire. Yeah. But that, that show is burned into the memory of everybody who knows anything about the music industry because yeah. they – um, they were in rare form. I mean, and, and of course they had had, had a, you know, uh, and if people are watching you. If you ever watch it, folks, they're Monterey Pop. You can watch it on various uh, places, streams and stuff. Jimmy's extremely nervous. And when he's nervous, he chews gum to calm himself down. Sure. And they go on, you know, the who, they, they, they get in a, a discussion with the who. And uh, Pete Townsend says, uh, Jimmy says, "You go on. We'll go out on before you." And who's and Pete Townsend of the Who says, "No way, we're going on before you guys. You must go on last." <laughs> so, so um, if you watch the movie Jimmy Hendrix, it came out in ni- 1973. It's a story of this, and they dis- discussed this. So uh, that episode, I can't de- describe it in, in words. It was it was a, it's a historic for rock and roll as Benny Goodman at Carnegie Hall in 1930. Yeah. Great way it to put was it. a it it was a uh, it changed everything. Of course, the the, the upside is be, they became very very well known in the United States, but unfortunately, it went on a tour with the Monkees for a month. Hmm. <laughs> That's funny. That's a weird uh, you know lineup. It didn't last very long. It drove Jimmy crazy. Jimmy was very competitive uh, musically, and uh, he always was. I, I I'm it probably is possibly his army training. He didn't like being showed up. So they were pretty much a sideline with the monkeys tour. They're the warm up back. Of course, it, it didn't fit, and they began yeah. sabotaging things right, right away. It's <laughs> it's kind of hilarious when you get into it. <laughs> the practical joking, I'm sure, was uh, 
yeah. yeah, that's it's that's almost like a um, I don't know where like you're you have all these things planned in the future, such as like a tour with the monkeys, but then something happens before that stuff starts that makes you be so much more. I don't want to say they're more popular than the monkeys. You know what I mean, though. It's just like it, it's just such a different thing. You blow up and then everything you have lined up no longer really makes sense uh, with these opening acts and things like that. I know that's happened with like Led Zeppelin and things like that, where you kind of got to flip flop the order. Uh <laughs> And it doesn't, exactly. it doesn't really work like that. If we, if, we, if we continue our timeline, Phil Graham, the promoter in California, was so impressed with, with Hendrix, the Hendrix guys that two days later, he booked them for, for um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday uh, at the Fillmore. Mm-hmm. So they, they were, he said, well, look at these. So look at these guys are so amazing. So, and that, that connection between Phil Graham with Fillmore West out in San Francisco and Fillmore East in, in New York remains throughout the, the uh, experience. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome, man. They must be on cloud nine. I mean, after that, and this is like, obviously, it sounds so dumb saying it, but it's so, there's no YouTube. There's no, <laughs> not everyone is holding a cell phone, filming it. Um, that's just such an iconic concert. Well, you know, you mentioned word of mouth. This this gigging club scene, that's where the word of, word of mouth builds, whether whether it's Hendrix, whether it's uh, um, um, Van, Van Halen, the police. The word of mouth starts in these clubs. Now, uh, let's let's uh, go into a little um, interesting thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Mitch is using that Tiger Stripe Premier kit. At some point, I don't know the exact day, they are, do a uh, show in California, J- July second. It's p- still part of the Monkeys tour. They go from there to Greensboro, North Carolina. So somewhere between July second and July twelfth. Mitch gets his first Ludwig kit, and it's shipped from from the Ludwig factory in Chicago to Manage Music in New York. Mm. The first picture of Mitch playing a Ludwig kit is at Forest Hill Stadium in New York, in New York City. Interesting. So you can kind of like pinpoint within a couple of days of how of when that when that happened. Um, mm-hmm. Wow, and that had to save on shipping, <laughs> getting that thing across the ocean. It's pretty convenient. Yeah, so he's in New York, and, he, and that, that kit comes from Ludwig. Now, Silver Sparkle, because he's an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tribute to Joe Morello's yeah. silver, famous Silver Sparkle kit. Cool. There, is one, there is some customization. There are four um, legs that are, you know, they go into the time. They're, they're from those uh, club date kits, so those small little mm-hmm. um, disappearing uh, legs, and they, that's the set he uses for the next year. Gotcha. One up, two down. Um, looks like he has pretty big floor toms. If you look at a picture of it, um, they're, pretty they're twin six, twin sixteens, just like buddy rich. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty big. Okay. And then symbols, is he a Zildjian guy? I mean, like most people at the time, what yeah. else, what else it, ex- use? Ex- exclusively Zildjian that, that, that kit is got, he always, Mitch always uses a, a, an 18 inch crash ride th- throughout the experience, okay. a 20 inch ride riveted. And a standard 14-inch hi hats, riveted mm-hmm. because of so he can do brushwork and and hear a sh- little sizzle on the on the drum set. That's pretty much the the kit. Now cra- using a crash ride all the way through from the 1960s to 19 for 10 years, cra- an 18-inch crash ride. Sometimes a 20, but I always use a crash ride. Mm, that's and it doesn't really make sense until you see that the, him play how he uses it. Yeah. 
I like crash rides. I think it's an interesting symbol because um, it's obviously it's a little bit of both. It's you know it's it's bigger than your normal crash and it's smaller than your normal ride. But I, I used to have one on a kit when I was you know a little younger, and um, it's a nice symbol to have, especially if you're really going to be laying into it. Um, yeah. Yes, exactly. That's probably why he had it. Yeah, that's awesome. So good. He's a good endorser, uh, I'm sure, for these brands as well. Ludwig and uh, and Zildjian, which was kind of the the it brands for a long time there, especially in that period. And uh, mentioning mentioning symbols, all of his symbols are used. He, I mean, they're not new symbols. He, does, he doesn't have an endorsement from Zildjian yet. So every every drum set, 60, 65, 66, 67, and even into 68 are not new symbols. He doesn't get a completely brand new factory set of new symbols until 69. Hmm. Was he a gear nut? Was he a gear guy? An unbelievable gearhead. Hmm. Down to the, uh, there, there are things I found out in the past year that uh, from the Hendricks Museum in, in Seattle, when I talked to, when I went out there out west of the Mitch Mitchell fan club, he, he was constantly making innovative things that uh, like, plastic inserts on the insides of, of his toms all the way around the insides. It looks sort of like, um, Oh, uh, looks like the, well, it looks like, like it's fiberglass, but it's, it's just bent strips of plastic on the insides of all his drums. He started doing that to make his drums, uh, uh louder because he was this, this thing of Jimmy with, uh, 10 Marshall amps and, uh, Noel Redding, the bass player, with 14 yeah. amps. Mitch was, Mitch was always poorly mic'd, so he was trying. He was constantly trying to get more sound. Of course, he starts off with seven, eight drumsticks. By nineteen, mm. by nineteen seventy, he's playing two Bs, yeah. huge, thick seven drums, A's aren't going to cut it with Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. That's such a unique. Uh, I mean, that the the I love the amplification and the uh, microphone process in those days. Of I'm sure they hated it, but I like the history of it about how tough it was. Where yeah, you're competing with it. And do you know if um, like Mitch's. Uh, experience and background with Jim Marshall was that I would assume that was connected to Jimmy playing Marshall or was it just kind of a coincidence? No, it, it, it was just the fact that um, Marshall by that time made the loudest, most powerful amps in the world. But uh, J- uh, mentioning gear, gear uh, Mitch was very, very picky about microphone placement. He was always getting in trouble with union guys in these big halls mm. who would not let him touch any of the microphones. And then when they walked away, he'd move the, the mic towards, towards the center of the bass drum. He would, they go, you can't, can't do that. No, that's it. You know, that goes against our contract. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he was, uh, yeah, he was, he was very, very, he, he knew what it, I guess from his studio days, he knew what, where mic placement should be, but had no control of it. Yeah. That's, that's a whole thing with with union and non-union and touching stuff and and I'm sure he's being a gearhead and a perfectionist kind of uh, with his stuff then then you know he wants to do what he wants to do so so as, as we go from 67 through 68 69 to the, the three albums and the three big tours Mitch is migrating more to Rogers more more to Rogers uh, the 67 kid is Ludwig drums uh, Roger stands a Ludwig uh, railmount. But by the, the big, big change is going to be 1968. That's when everything changes. That's really the height of the experience. When they, musically, I think, career-wise, professionally, and Mitch is, that kit that goes out in 1968 
is um, the, really the I think it's, it's the epitome of what Mitch was doing with the Hendricks experience. Now, I can, I can give you, your listeners the exact date. On Friday, March 29th, 1968, Mitch goes to the, to the Ludwig factory, and here's the actual quote. That day, I'd been to the Ludwig drum factory. They gave me the guided tour, and I picked up a great big brand-new bass drum. And then, of course, he's, he's talking about a drum set. Now, I'm quoting from Hendrix, 1968, Day by Day, by, by Ben Volkoff. And he's from Amsterdam. He's a top European Hendrix expert. And this book just came out in 2019. I would, if you're a Hendrix person, or it goes into excruciating detail. Hendrix, 1968, Day by Day. So that kit was picked up. And it's, it's a natural maple kit with a 24-inch bass drum, 14 by 24, 9 by 13 tom, a 16 by 16, and a 16 by 18 floor tom. And it's picked up at the Olympic factory. But it's not used until, uh, in a performance, until, uh, let's see, May 10th at the mm-hmm. Fillmore East in New York City. That's the first time, this first picture of Mitch with this brand new natural maple Ludwig kit. And that really... For me personally, that's that's the high point. That that's that you know, it's amazing drum set. It has all it's all the only thing that's there is Ludwig is the drums. Everything else is Rogers. Rogers stands, and he uses 1940s Ludwig tilters. I don't. No one knows to this day why hmm. he removed the uh, swivel matic and put these weird kind of spindly, you know, not very strong tilters on the drums. Of course, my my replicas have ex- this exactly down to the T. Hmm. Gosh. Wow, that's fascinating. Roger, Roger, yeah, Roger Spurs, Roger Swivelmatic, and all the stands, of course, Rogers. I wonder how, you know, I mean, it's probably pretty easy to find out, but I wonder how Ludwig would feel about that. Like, okay, people keep taking, maybe that's, they, they finally caught the, you know, got the message that, hey, people keep changing out our, uh, our, our hardware here and doing this, which, which a lot of companies, use, like I said, a lot of companies used Rogers, but to get this brand new drum set and have to switch out all of this, you know, the little accessory hardware pieces and the mounts and stuff. Um, well, that's a very good question. Yeah. They, 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 Ludwig doesn't get their act together until 1970-76 when Rogers comes out with their um, their 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 kit that has mem- it's called Memory Lock. It's a yeah, memory yeah. kit. Of course, um, Alamert at Ludwig copies it, and we get the first Ludwig modular kit in 1979. That kit, the modular kit, which some people complain looks like plumbing is the first really tough robust tom mounting system that Ludwig ever had so you know it's 60 is 59 69 79 uh 20 years before Ludwig really makes a, a decent tom holder hmm. you know it's hard hard to understand yeah, yeah. But, but also they, they have the same Ludwig has the same problems with with their their their, their drum shells and their and their bearing edges and, and the reason for this is you've probably talked to, I know you've talked to guys about the calf hen, calfskin heads. Sure. Ludwig doesn't fix that problem until 1980, 81. The, the bearing edges are so poorly made. Now, the reason they, Ludwig can get away with this, when you have a calfskin head, it, it goes on damp yeah. and it conforms to the bearing edge, then it sounds pretty good. But when you put plastic over that same thing, it doesn't conform to anything. Now, the first company that figured out, hey, we got to do something new was, of course, um, Keller. Keller made decent shells that were very highly finished. To, to They made the adjustment to plastic, to mylar, before anybody else did. Mm. Of course, Ludwig tried to copy them. Other companies tried to copy them. Uh, 
So they're always behind the eight ball. The, the top innovators realize, hey, these everything's changed with this plastic. We got to change. It wasn't until twenty years that yeah. Ludwig really modernized. It's hard to believe, but it, that's 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 true. So, and then I would probably throw out as as I mean, we all like and love Ludwig. Obviously, they're iconic. Maybe you know they ought to to answer, you know, to guess. They're so slammed, and they make so many drums that it's obviously their main priority is just keeping their head above water at that, especially in the '60s. And um, well, well, I, uh, it's, it's interesting. I know the Lubby, I know the Lubby family. I, I worked at a drum shop in Chicago in the '80s. I used to go to Ludwig Factory every Friday. And uh, the the thing with Ludwig in the '60s was they couldn't meet the demand. They were making a hundred kits a day, wow. and I, they, I they, there are there's indications I haven't verified this, there were time, there was a few days they actually made 200 drum sets a day so quality was always an issue um, you know that's the reason why they nested the the wrap into the one, the, one of the plies mm-hmm. to just make it five minutes faster so they were always uh, battling against the clock and even from from 64 to 68 they still couldn't meet demands and they had you know the story they had three shifts going sure so they were it wasn't so much cutting corners it's just how do we get this stuff out yeah, and, and suddenly, boom! It all fell out. The bottom fell out in '68. So yeah, and there's um, people stealing stuff from the factory, and there's just uh, the Ludwig. That's a whole other. There's episodes, many episodes about that. But um, well, in Ludwig's defense, they had over by 1975, they had over 120 patents. All the major innovations in drum manufacture came from Ludwig, from actually from the 50s and 60s. The first metal, all-metal snare with, with a center reinforcing bead. The first uh, throw-off that actually worked. The first uh, hi-hat that was stable. Uh, the innovations are remarkable. And then the first pedal-tuned timpani with a balanced action. They, they, they had over 120 patents. So they, they, they did everything, not everything, but they did most things correctly. But I, their biggest enemy it was really uh, t- time, it, it, trying to get all the stuff out yeah. as fast as possible. You're going to cut corners. You're going to follow the principles of manufacturing set forth and by this famous guy, Taylor, in, in a 1905. You're going to place everything. You want to get it out the door, out the door, or out the door. Because yeah. they know this is not going to last forever. No, and but it didn't. It, it didn't. But I, it just I think of you know the the boom in the '60s. But then I also think of being a kid, and you know I think it was in the mid '90s. I was sitting there on a pre, like pre Google like search dot com some pre Google thing looking up the Ludwig logo just because I like to look at it. The Ludwig logo is based on Senior. That's what the family called WFL one mm-hmm. Senior's hand signature is based on that. Just as the Ford signature on Ford cars is based on Henry Ford's signature. Yeah great marketing i know that's a whole story there with having the logo on there but all right back to mitch here so um carry on on the timeline getting back with mitch i think we left off in the in the we're getting closer to the late 60s here um yes so yeah keep going so in 68 they embark on this legendary infamous tour that mitch says uh was a tour from hell uh it was not organized uh Logically, as far as going from Cleveland to Chicago, the Midwest, and then going hit, hitting the, the eastern seaboard, New York, Philadelphia area, it was hit and miss. You're in Toronto one night, next night you're in Chicago, then you fly to Denver, then the next night you're in, you're in Winnipeg. It, it, it was, it, Mitch calls it the uh, tour from hell. He also says whoever booked that tour had no concept of geography. Yeah. That was a, that was a grueling, ama- a very difficult 
tour for them. Uh, it was physically beyond comprehension. In fact, they didn't have a break until September of 68. They had one month off. And uh, that, that, was an, that was an amazing tour. I mean, it, I think that, that, that I mentioned this before. It was the height of their, their physical and creative processes. Mitch is tra- traveling um, with that famous natural maple kit. Uh, Jimmy is uh, he wear, he's wearing this um, black hat that has a, a, a broad rim that rim that whole that whole year, but that was a uh, grueling tour. I, I, I've heard that they took f- uh, fifty thousand miles by car, by car and bus. So it was an epic tour, very famous. If you go to the Mitch Mitchell fan club, we have there's maps of this, mm. and awesome. um, so it it was it was of course, and at the same time they're trying to record. Um, Electric Ladyland, uh, wow. which is a, a twin album, very very difficult, yeah. and um, they somehow managed to pull that off all that time. Of course, he's, they're they're in famous Miami Pop in, in May of '68, and that whole time they're, they're recording constantly. Jimmy's on the plane; they they play at the Gulfstream Park on a Saturday. The, the Sunday concert is canceled, and it's produced by Michael Lane, the same guy that produced Woodstock a year later. On the plane back, the concert's canceled. Jimmy writes uh, "Rainy Day, Dream Away." You know that's because the concert got canceled. So that mm-hmm. that was a that was like um, musical. That was like D Day. I mean, it was it was really tough, <laughs> really really hard. Mitch yeah. complained about it to the to, to the rest of his life. It he complained about all the tours, but that's especially that 1968 tour. It was a, on, on every level. It was a huge success. They were making thirty grand a night. Jeez. But that, that that was that was a that was a tough one. Well, unbelievable. But you think, I mean, touring then, and you you you, you know, I was watching. I guess it was eight days a week. The the Beatles uh, thing on Hulu, where it was a recent documentary where it talks about them stopping this madness of touring because it's so unpleasant. Then it's not like now where I feel like things were just in in the simplest form a lot less comfortable and it was more just it was tough so it's even for young well, guy it's bad there are conspiracy theorists that say that that whole thing was deliberate by michael jeffrey his management to make it as brutal as possible to keep them barely uh you know i mean barely you know barely uh functioning on purpose is a standard standard um procedure with uh you know, in British military. Well, actually, uh, Michael Jeffries has a background in British military intelligence. He's an MI5 guy. So, I, I you know it sounds kind of far out. You would you want to keep these guys at a point of exhaustion on purpose? I think that actually was the case. Man, there's no other logical reason to do it. Yeah, uh, or just milk them for everything they've got. But I guess that goes with the same thing of of just run them till they're ragged. It seems like and they were seen as as a as a commodity, as a product, a little bit from management. Oh, exactly, exactly. It, it, it was, uh, it was that that tour was financially, commercially, professionally successful beyond anyone's dreams, but it's emotionally, physically, uh, like like going to boot camp. And I've been there with the Marine Corps. <laughs> yeah, I'm, my God, I'm sure. Um, wow. Okay, so. They must have just been exhausted, and you said they got a month off. What did What did Mitch like to do? And his, do you know what he liked to do in his his brief off time? They jammed. They 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 had a they got a rented house, which is rented to various musical acts in Benedict Canyon Canyon area of Los Angeles, and they had from September to October they had one month, and we really didn't do anything mm-hmm. except sit around the pool, uh, drink, 
do you know yeah sure uh things like that and, and of course there's a famous picture uh photo photo series shot comes out in january of 1969 in look magazine special issue on on black life black power and it shows those guys sitting around and chilling out it was a wonderful experience for them yeah they deserve but it to take a break very quickly very quickly they're back on that grueling thing here so um now if we if we continue to december 1st Okay, Mitch had ordered his next Ludwig kit, which is a double base Black Panther kit. It has some some amazing customizations that I didn't even realize until recently. That kit is ordered in before the end of the 68 tour, and then Mitch gives that 68 natural maple kit to Robert Wyatt, the drummer for the backup band Soft Machine, which he has to this day. And then um, they... They order they, they, by by December. Their their the tour is over between December first, nineteen sixty eight, and January seventh. At some point, a new drum set comes from Ludwig. It's a double bass Black Panther kit, hmm. two twin twenty four inch bass bases. Um, uh, it's, instead of a nine by thirteen, it's a custom nine by fourteen, and instead of a sixteen by sixteen floor, it's a, we, I now know it's a sixteen by fourteen and a sixteen by eighteen. Hmm. All Rogers um, Rogers. Uh, Spurs, Rogers, everything, Rogers mounts. And that kit is um, ordered in, in December. And the first time we see it at an actual gig is Wendy, Wednesday, January 8th in Gutenberg, Sweden. Mitch, Mitch has that brand new double bass kit. Now he's under a lot of pressure, apparently, to be like Ginger Baker. So yeah. he has a double bass that double bass kit. Yeah, exactly. Because that's not really his style in the past. And, and if, I mean, if, if anyone is. If you've, I mean, of course you have, but a, lo a lot of people out there, maybe who are younger, haven't had the opportunity to, to actually play with two bass drums as opposed to a double bass pedal. Mm -hmm. To be honest, it's not the most comfortable thing in the world. And, and it kind of takes a little getting used to with how far you need to be, you know, with the high exactly, stand. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And your legs are sp spread pretty far apart. Yeah. Now that drum set uh, has an eight by, it has an uh, eight by 13 and a nine by 14 mounted tom. It's a really unusual set. Yeah. That's a set that he's going to use all of 1969. Hmm. It's cool looking. I mean, and I'm sure, you know, the roadies, his, his, his crew didn't love it moving <laughs> more drums and setting them up, but you know, it's, now, it's really cool. looking. Now, are your listeners aware of, of why Ludwig went to, uh, to black Panther? I don't know. Let's not assume anything. So why don't you, uh, Tell us about it. Well, because there, there was they, they had made two different color wraps that that were that were that totally bombed. They'd made, manufactured about two hundred kits of a, like a pink black or instead of a black oyster oyster black it was a pink oyster. Mm. It looked atrocious, so they basically <laughs> took took a uh, a covering material, contact paper. And shipped out all these drum sets with Black Panther. The only reason they did Black Panther was to hide the wrap underneath. Oh wow, that's interesting. <laughs> yep. That's so. Uh, yeah, it's just like for one of the biggest drum companies in the world. It's like uh, I feel like that doesn't happen nowadays. It would be like, all right, let's just t let toss them or, or, or shave them down, and we'll do something else. But it's like now, just cover it in contact paper. <laughs> you know, uh, Mr. Ludwig Senior was notoriously. Um, um, good with money he'd walk around a factory with with a, a coffee cup looking for screws and stuff and nails so <laughs> uh, um no that's a true story that's so funny. that kit that kit the interesting thing now they they kind of hit it because on the back of the, of the 1970-71 catalog it says wraps uh, excuse me it says it says uh, um finishes you know pearls 
and it says black oyster as a pearl. But in the inside where they show the kit de uh, protect, uh, de depicted and shows, it says black panther contact paper. Mm. You know, they, so they knew what they were doing, but the average drummer had no idea. Yeah, interesting. And I mean, the now that you can look back on it and it's retro, I think the the pink, you know, oyster, the pink pearl is actually pretty cool looking. But I guess when it came out, it might be a little, uh, you know, I don't know if it was brand new. It's it is a little dated looking, but now that's in and that's cool. So, oh, it's cool. Yeah, I'm sure they're really rare, obviously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um. All right, so he's rocking his big double bass kit. Did Mitch? I'm sure. Who was his drum tech in in those days? Did he have a good relationship with his? Tech? That's a very good question. I I found out when the Mitch Mitchell fan clubs started. I, I contacted some. There was a Mitch Mitchell uh, page in Germany, and the guy's name was he was an African British guy, and his name was it had a biblical name. It was Isaiah or Elijah, hmm. and he was the guy that. That did a lot of that work. Of course, Mitch did did it, did it too. But Mitch was very, very, very specific, like a gearhead. Um, he did things that were unconventional if he couldn't get it to work. For example, the the the, the swivelmatic bass drum mount goes straight down perpendicular into the shell. Well, Mitch couldn't find one at that time, so they put it at a weird angle. But it actually worked. When I made my reproduction, I'm going. Yeah, well, it worked for Mitch, and sure enough, it, it works. But the guy's name was Elijah, or hmm. or uh, he was a, he was uh, he worked with him in, in London. Now, when he get, uh, I uh, I talked to Billy Cox. Someone talked to Billy Cox, and Billy Cox couldn't rem remember the guy's exact name, but he said he'd passed by nineteen seventy in the seventies. He'd passed away. Hmm. So Jimmy did have a, a drum tech. Gotcha. Back in the sixties, okay. London based, London based. Sure, you you kind of have to. I mean, if you're at that level, it's like if you're being on this grueling schedule, it's like, give the guy a little bit of a break. <laughs> Let him have someone uh, help him, right? Well, Mitch would set up his sets when they were brand new. He People say, to this day, people say he would put, had white gloves. Oh, cool. He'd play, he, he would place it. He didn't want any, any fingerprints. Any, so he was, uh, you know. Yeah, clearly, clearly very, very particular. Um, now, now, the 69 kit, uh, by, by 1969, it's got a... a a Slingerland Buddy Rich hi hat, which is the toughest hi hat made. By the end of by the end of 1969, that set went to Woodstock in August. It's a it's a Ludwig drum, Ludwig drums, uh, Rogers cymbal stands, a Slingerland hi hat, and a Rogers power tone snare drum. For the, that's what that's what he was using by the end of 1969. At Woodstock, he's using a Rogers power tone. Hmm. Uh, always use uh, uh, the Buck Rogers stands, which are made by Wahlberg and Auger. Hmm. That's cool. And uh, canister thrones in 60, 67 silver, canister thrones matching in 68, and then a lovely timpani stool in 1969, and bigger symbols. Oh, cool. Yep. Yeah, yeah. The, the canister thrones are an interesting thing because I think they're cool because they match your set and all that, but mm -hmm. ergonomically, I guess, not the most, uh, uh, you know, the best thing for your body as you, I guess you're kind of... You're at that height. I always think it's interesting. I guess with a canister throne, you would get the throne and then kind of bring the rest of the drums up to be comfortable around it because you're sure. Yeah, yeah, you exactly. Very yeah. good point. You're stuck with the height, which is about between 22 and 24. Well, we can't forget the the infamous Ching ring with the hi-hats. Mitch used that mm. at 67, 68, 69. Bonham used them too. Sure. Yeah. And you want to describe that Ching ring? Yeah, Mark? I mean, so you'd probably do it better than me, but I mean, it's it's basically, I always just kind of looked at it as like a, 
I mean, it's early effects. It's, it's kind of tambourine-ish in a way. Exactly. And and Mitch did something interesting. He, We, in our research for the Mitch Mitchell Fan Club replicas, um, Mitch just took a hi-hat clutch and held the um, the hi-hat clutch uh, around the – it's a circular ring with, with a centerpiece with a series of holes. Um, it looks like – it looks like uh, – um, a no parking sign, a circle with it, with a, a hash back through mm-hmm. it through the middle. Yeah. And then it has a series of rings, but Mitch held it with a hi-hat clutch. So there's a hi-hat clutch holding the symbol and an upside down hi-hat clutch holding the chain ring on, on, on the center rod. Interesting. That's how I did it. Is that what Bonham would do as well with the two clutches? Cause I, I, I got one and I was like putting years ago, I think I just put it in a drawer or something. I was putting it on the same, you know, between the felt and the hi-hat, but yeah, we I did that too originally because the pictures of Mitch with that were so uh, hard to tell. Eventually, I found a close up. I, I went, "Aha! He's got a he's, he's being held with a with a clutch." That's a it's an ingenious thing, an upside is. down clutch. Yeah, that's so very. That, that's what he used. I don't know George Way ish or something. Just some it's, right. it's you know it's pretty inventive, um, which he obviously is. Symbol sizes remain constant until 1969. Then he goes to bigger symbols. He has a 20-inch uh, uh, um, crash rod. He has a 19-inch medium fast and a 20-inch crash. The symbols are way bigger in 69, much bigger. Hmm. He's, he's getting away from the speed bop thing. He's going loud. Yeah, he's going They're, full rock. I mean, this is yep, – but I guess exactly. that's, that's what other guys are doing as well at yep, that time. Bigger yep. sizes – so he, yep. I think it's interesting too that you said he had to keep up with uh, Ginger Baker, who was obviously a famous, you know, drummer at that time. It, now as well, but they was there competition in the drummer world of of who's the best at that point? Yeah, oh, definitely. But 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 like you mentioned, Mitch is pretty much known to the to the drummer world, but virtually the the mighty shadow of James Marshall Hendrix. Uh, overshadows bitch pretty much that whole time. Eventually, we're not, we're, when we discussed the founding of the Mitch Mitchell fan club, I'll explain. We, 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 I felt we had to do this because Mitch was pretty much overlooked. It's not because he wasn't great. It's because Hendrix was so huge. Whereas uh, Ginger Baker had a lot more press coverage in the 60s. Yeah. Okay. Good press coverage or bad press coverage? Yeah. No, no, no. Good because of the double, double bass. He was the first rock act with double bass. Yeah. And the first to do it extended solo before Bonham was even doing that. Mm, interesting. And he's a character. He needs his own whole episode, uh, Ginger Baker. Oh, yes, and, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, That'll be remarkable. I, I will say that when I post, because I post a drum video every day on, on social media, and I, I just did one of Ginger Baker. And he, to this day, I tell you what, there are more comments of, man, he's overrated. And then there's 25 replies saying, he's the best drummer in the world. He gets more people worked up. Than anyone else, Ginger Baker. I mean, and that just goes right along the the style of uh, of, of his personality, you know. And he and he would love that. <laughs> yeah, he'd love to get them all worked up, and you know, and be smoking and say, "Yeah, fight." <laughs> all right, so let's let's keep going with Mitch because we're you know I love this is a nice long episode and I love it, but let's let's keep chugging here. Okay, by by April twenty six, Mitch has a a a small kind of a strange looking Gretsch kit. Tony Williams gave him, uh, I believe in March, a, a bebop kit with 20 inch bass drum, eight by 12 Tom and a 14 by 14 floor Tom. And then Mitch goes to Manny's and tries to make that a double bass kit. But they, 
he gets a 24-inch bass drum, and then uh, another floor time. Then he goes out to Maui in Cal- at, at Hawaii and does that famous Rainbow Bridge concert with the strangest-looking drum set. It's it's really two drum. It's clearly two drum sets: a bebop kit on the on the um, on the left side and a, a, a heavier rock kit on the right. And then by Monday, May 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, he, he has the, 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 the Gretsch kit thing put together with two double bass, 14 by 24 bass, uh, bass drums um, in black cortex with a gold sparkle ring uh, on the hoop. And that's the kit he uses to, to the last Hendrix concert all the way through from April till um, September when they play the Isle of, famous Isle of Wight concert and they play a small concert on an island in Farnham, Germany. Mm. So that last six months, he's playing a, a, a Gretsch kit, a double bass kit. In fact, he plays that um, on some TV appearances too with, with Jimmy. So did he become a Gretsch artist? Yes, officially? definitely. Okay. And, okay. I, and it's very interesting. By, the, by, by 1970, Mitch is finally being mic'd up big time. And if you watch, if you watch Isle of Wight, you'll see when they start up and they're doing a sound test, those, that Gretsch set sounds amazing, amazing. Yeah. But there's mics everywhere, hmm. finally. And, but, 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 but the, but the, uh, the uh, omnipresent Ludwig 400 snare, he, does, he uses that with, with, with uh, all the way through from, six, from 66, excuse me, from 65 all to 19, all, 1970. Every drum set he ever uses, regardless of brand, has a Ludwig 400 snare. Yeah, I mean, I think we all know it, but bass drum, toms, uh, it's it's one thing, but your snare is your sort of your voice. So that kind of makes sense that he wants to keep a consistent uh, voice. Mm-hmm. Buddy Rich, all the big ones kind of had their their uh, their particular like Buddy with his five snare and um, disguise as a Slingerland. <laughs> disguise, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's been <laughs> that's another one too for another on different episodes, but. Yeah, that's cool. I love, I mean, the Gretsch, that's just looking at, there's some high res pictures as well from that um, concert in Maui. And boy, those are beautiful drums. I mean, there's just something they about They sure are. And yeah. uh, uh, when we discussed the replicas, uh, the Mitch Mitchell fan club has, I, I created a 67, 68, 69 Ludwig replicas exact to Mitch. We are going to do the double bass kit in 2022. Cool. Uh, Gretsch, that's coming. That's awesome. So, um, all right, well, as most people know, um, I believe in 1970, right? Jimmy, unfortunately, as a young guy, uh, passes away, correct? So yep. what what is that whole thing like? I mean, that just had to rock Mitch's world. Mitch never gets over it emotionally. To, to, to the last day he drew breath on in this world, Aisha, his daughter, said, my father never recovered from that. He lost his best friend. His world was turned upside down, and he never fully adjusted to it. Yeah, and that's coming directly from Aisha Mitchell's daughter. Mm -hmm. I think she's become a dear friend of mine. I've talked for hours about it. Um, He, you know, he plays with uh, Jeff Beck. He jams with. um, He's in a band called Ramatan. They released two albums. Uh, There was a possibility he. There, there is indication he was a possible drummer for Emerson Lake, but Palmer got the gig. Yeah. Uh, he auditioned for for Wings in uh, Paul McCartney's band after post Beatles 1974. Hmm. Um, 
and he does various th- various things around England, but he was pretty much retired. D- didn't really play that much. Uh, from time to time, he 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 migrated to uh, Yamaha kit in the nineties. Oh, cool! Towards yeah. the very end, there after two thousand four, he was uh, actually officially a DW artist. His nice. last drum set he played was DW. Oh, cool! That makes sense. That's kind of a. I mean, DW still huge, but in that that early two thousands, that was really the drums to have. Um, I feel like every every time you turn on TV or any performance, there was mm-hmm. DW. Um, gosh, was was he? I, I know you mentioned that because, and same with Jimmy and everyone, but a lot of people in those days signing things and not really knowing what was going on. Was he financially okay from from all the you know? He, he was stuff? he was okay. He was okay. I mean, but but he he was. Never got the um, what's the word? He never got the percentage that he should have got. Yeah, and th- those are decisions. People get upset at the current Hendrix Hendrix um, Ella, Hendrix experience uh, experience Hendrix organization, but you can't really blame them. Mitch Mitch had signed that made that mistake in this in this early night uh, night when he was nineteen and twenty. Yeah. So that that now the, 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 that was resolved. The the the, the Hendrix experience LLC. Mitch was booked on various gigs through the '90s and into up to all, all the way to his passing in 2008, but he never enjoyed a real financial success that I think he should have. Now, another here's another way of looking: Had Jimmy survived? Had Jimmy lived past 1970? I, I'm sure Mitch would have gotten a would have been a, would have passed away as a multimillionaire, yeah. worth a couple hundred million dollars. Yeah. Okay. And then obviously. Uh- so at the end, um, he he passed away as 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 I would say a, a pretty. He was not an old man. I mean, he was what sixty one when he passed yes. away. Now he he had a underlying medical condition that I don't I I know about from from the family. I I don't I'm not at liberty to say sure. it. And it was not it was not uh, drugs and it wasn't alcohol. He had a, another serious condition. that has to do with his his blood count or something. And that, that was causing problems for him for his last 10 years. Yeah. And that, and of course no one knew about it except the family. Mm. So he, he had a serious uh, medical condition towards the end there. That was, that really a- aged him. He, he's in the sixties. He looks like somebody in his mid seventies. So Man, that's so unfortunate, but, but I mean, he lived a great life. Um, he obviously is, we're talking about him still to this day, which is which is you know something that I'm I'm very happy that we get to share his legacy and carry it on. Um, it's just fascinating. I think you're doing an amazing thing with the fan club. Um, how did uh, talk about the fan club? I mean, is that I feel like we covered Mitch pretty darn well. I mean, is there anything else we want to talk about with Mitch before we move on to the fan club? We could do a couple more episodes just about the, the actual drumming parts, <laughs> yeah, but we, maybe for true. another time. Yeah, you know, it's it's a situation where you you hear this guy play, and it takes you five or six or seven or ten years to get the technique that he had when he was nineteen. Yeah, one note about his playing is just it is so um, iconic and legendary, and it just reminded me. I almost forgot about it because it feels like uh, it feels like a lifetime ago, but in twenty nineteen. I saw the uh, Experience Hendrix tour here in Cincinnati, um, which had uh, Joe Satriani, it had Zach Wild, it had Weasel Zappa, it had Chris Layton on drums, who was playing um, mm-hmm. Mitch's parts. And going and seeing that, 
and just hearing these drum parts played by someone else with which um chris layton obviously who was a stevie ray vaughn um did an unbelievable job but i kind of remember thinking that there was something about mitch's style of of the man himself playing it that it had a looseness to it that well it, sw- it swings yeah most rock time. drummers that play it uh they, they can kind of copy it they can do fire and some of the but but he there's a swing to it there's a swing now can i give you three interesting quotes about mitch please yeah before we talk a little about the about the fan club yeah. okay this is from from drum magazine uh the innovator the legendary Mitch Mitchell was the world's first rocking drummer with jazzy chops and the most influential drummer of the 60s. His work with Jimi Hendrix threw every rock and roll drummer for a loop. Mitchell successfully blended the improv- improvisational freedom of jazz drumming with the speed, power, and flash of rock. Now, here's from another, another article. Mitchell brought a jazz sensibility to the experience, which makes sense since his influence were Elvin Jones, Max Roach and Joe Morello, as we discussed. He also excelled in, at bringing improvisatory flourishes to Hendrix's open-ended guitar playing. In the process, he developed a unique chemistry with Hendrix's unprecedented guitar playing that's never been equaled. And the last one, there's two more. Mitch Mitchell played, um, playing mixed the improvisation ingredients and rhythmic sense of swing out of the jazz tradition with the audacity and power of rock and roll. This combination meant that the art form of drumming would never be the same after Mitch Mitchell. Mitch was not alone in blending jazz and rock drumming styles, but he may have pushed the concept farther and further than anyone before him. And my last quote is from Stuart Copeland of the Police, who's a, a huge Mitch fan. Mm-hmm. When it, Mitch, uh, Stuart says, when it seems that drums should be boring, and when the band starts muttering about meat and potatoes, there's always Mitch Mitchell to remind us otherwise. Mm. He calls Stewart calls Mitch consistently since the seventies. My favorite drummer. That's awesome. I love all those quotes. I mean, it's just. I think you said it before too about you're playing with Jimi Hendrix, and to be able to stick out at all and be people's favorite drummers when you're standing behind one of the most famous musicians ever. No matter like well, Mozart, Beethoven, uh-huh. Jimi Hendrix. I mean, it's- right now, now Jimmy's famous quote. He turns around and looks at Mitch. He goes, "That little guy, he scares me." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so awesome! So, Kevin, what three or four songs do you think really capture the essence of Mitch Mitchell? Because we've said he's jazzy, he's rock, he's got his very unique style. But where can we direct people to, you know, hear exactly what we're talking about? Well, there's so many. It's like, it's like, where do we begin? But there are certainly some that are are, are so iconoclastic and bombastic that they made an enormous input. When Are You Experienced first came out, nobody had ever heard anything like that on guitar, but the drumming was radically a, a step ahead of what we were had heard before. The first time I, I heard um, Third Stone from the Sun, I, I was not believing what I was hearing. I'm hearing this... Uh, I guess trippy kind of a psychedelic yeah. song with with this bebop jazz playing. I, I didn't even know who Mitch Mitchell was, yeah. but I said, "My gosh, what this is so revolutionary!" And you know, it starts off just it goes right into bebop playing. Then yep. it switches to a rock feel, and then it goes it goes uh, like this long on a guitar and right yeah. back in this thing. So you yeah. hear that you hear the chops of an Elvin Jones, Tony Williams. Uh, in his rock song, it was it's just uh, uh, remarkable. So uh, yeah. uh, that song, it's the beginning to the end, and then then over the over the the guitar kind of uh, freak out. Mitch is going, 
that kind of rudimental stuff in sure. those patterns. So that was really amazing. The next song, uh, there's, uh, like I said, picking up picking up the songs is difficult. Up from the skies, on on elect, um, Access Bowl's Love is another radical departure because it starts off with um, with brushes. Of course, it does the famous. So you hear the song. What in the world? There's a jazz brushes on the the first actual song of the album. <laughs> pretty, uh, you know, pretty out there. He's he he doesn't seem to care. Not I don't want to say he doesn't seem to care, but he seems to not be constrained by anything. Well, I, I've said this before for years. I, I'm so grateful that Jimmy let Mitch be Mitch, and that's yeah. that's a remarkable thing. It wasn't oh, uh, sit in a corner. And, see in the background he wasn't intimidated at all by mitch's playing and it was uh apparently so uh, experimental it was perfectly cool with with, with jimmy so totally um, yeah. yeah and let me let me throw this in there too i think people know because they've listened to the show before but with these with audio examples of one of the most famous you know guitarists in the world it gets caught by copyright stuff pretty quick of course. um you kind of can you can put them on podcasts but I know that it's going to get caught up. And if I put it on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook, it gets taken down instantly. Like it's it just so, catches yeah. it within seconds. So mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll put the names of these songs um, in the um, description of the episode. So people can do a little bit of homework and, and listen to them separately. But anyway, all right, what would be number three? Okay. If someone said to me, what Mitch uh, Mitchell drumming with Jimi Hendrix establishes him forever as um, a giant, of percussion would be Voodoo Child, the 50 minute song in the in the middle of Electric Ladyland. That song was recorded about two o'clock in the morning. There was an ABC television crew in there hmm. and a bunch a bunch of hangers on. And you hear those background noise. People have said for years, oh, that was that was canned. No, the, the studio was loaded with all these people. And it was it was filmed by ABC and then promptly lost. Now, when when the uh, it's it's a slow six eight uh, song one, two, three, four, five, six. There's a blues, boom, boom, bop, starts, starts off. Now, the amazing thing is got Steve Winwood on, on organ. Um, mm, cool. Um, it's got Jack Cassidy from Jefferson Airplane on bass. And Mitch is just this total free form. Uh, it's, it's only 12 uh, in, in reality. Now, for years and years, I play, I tried to play the song incorrectly. Then I then when the mo- the movie came out, the making of Are You Experienced, you see Mitch playing that song for about five or six seconds, and here is what he's doing, which is is so mind blowing. The song is one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four. But he's rocking back and forth, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, oh, five, six. So he's doing this three over two while he's playing the one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four. Four, five, six, one, hmm. three, four, and with that that weird lilt tilt thing, you get the you get the proper feel. If you don't sure. do that, it, it doesn't sound right. And I'd played it for years and years and years, and then when I saw that, I went, oh, now I, I understand. I mean, theoretically, what he's doing, but it's so advanced. He's playing this one and two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six. It's, it's yeah. insane. It's so cool that you you notice that by his body movement. I mean, sometimes you can't tell that's just the cool thing about drums is you can't tell what's happening like people can it can be the same thing we all hear but you we all we we, we hear it slightly differently you know yes, or we, we play it a little different if you actually listen to the to the, the song it starts off very slow but as as it gets in he gets into the the, the triplet field and then he'll go he goes 
the, the fills, and they say, okay, it is too busy, some people think, but it's just remarkable, remarkably inventive. Of course, in the back of the, of the, of the, of the song is an extended uh, solo, which is, to this day, it's like, what is he doing? It's so remarkable. Yeah. And, and then it comes, it comes out, kind of fades in, and you know, just kind of deal with Jimmy would be, t- you know, live and then recordings. Jimmi would kind of be uh, uh, taking a puff of a cigarette, do a little bit of tuning, and Mitch is over there doing this explosive, <laughs> insane stuff. And then, then Jimmy looks at him and, you know, takes a puff on his cigarette, puts it under there, and it, it's just <laughs> crazy. He's got to act, uh, you know, he can't act too impressed every night. He's got to act cool, right? He's Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, he, he's so nonchalant. Mitch is back there just, just tearing it up. Nuts. Yeah, that's funny. All right, how about one more, um, and then we'll move on. Okay, the other one would probably be, it's, it, so many people talked about it, it's, If Six Were Nine, which is it was yeah. used in several movies, actually. And it was a, a popular, a, a very popular with Viet, Vietnam veterans, well, actually while, while they were over there. It, it's, it's, it has very unusual, weird kind of a vibe. And once again, it does have an extended solo in the middle. But it's, it, it's, uh, it has that jazzy feel. And that's that's the thing that makes Mitch unique. No matter what he plays, there is a swing lilt to it. Sure. And if you, and if you don't do put that in there, it doesn't really quite uh, you know sound authentic. And that's important. Authentic Mitch. I once got once quit a band because they wouldn't let me do Mitch Mitchell. And it was a Hendrix cover band. I said, "Well, you got an authentic guitar, but you don't want authentic Mitch." No, we don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> we want it tight. I mean, that's the yeah. kind of thing where you can't. I mean, I'm sure you could spend time learning it, but but that's what makes that's his voice is that particular kind of swing, and it's just like a, a flow to it that that you can't really read. If you're reading the no. notes, it's not there. It's got to be Mitch. It, it defines the concept of feel. We know time, tempo, groove. Now, one one, one last thing I want to add is Buddy Rich was asked what makes a good, great drummer, and he called them the five T's: talent, technique, taste, touch, and time. And certainly Mitch had all of them. Yeah, absolutely. One quick uh, thing I want to add is, uh, I, I didn't mention, uh, is that Vader, Vader Drumstick Company, I found this out through my local dealer in South Florida, yeah. uh, Resurrection Dumps. They had a Mitch Mitchell stick under development, but it was never released. And uh, my um, drum uh, per- percussion dealer, Jeff Lee, said, uh, they know they know what you're doing with the Mitch Mitchell fan club. You you want to help them finish that stick? I said, well, what do I need to do? They said you have to do the artwork. So oh, I I added a Mitch Mitchell signature, which is hard to find in, with a sharpie because most of them are pens, and then Mitch Mitchell's profile. So there is a Vader Mitch Mitchell stick. It's not available yet on the website, but um, they're remarkable sticks. They're about a, they're like a 10A. They have a barrel chip. They're a shorter stick, but they're, they're a remarkable stick. That's awesome. That's a perfect way to kind of wrap up that that the the Mitch biography. Now, give us some info about the Mitch Mitchell fan club. And I want to say right off the bat, people should go on Facebook and find the Mitch Mitchell fan club on Facebook. You've got about four thousand two hundred members. I mean, this is yes, a, this yeah. is a you're doing it, man. This is I love that you're you're keeping the the legacy alive. Well, I started in um, in uh, 2013 when I joined Facebook and I looked for a Facebook page. I mean, a fan page. There was nothing. There were a half a dozen bottom pages. John Bottom. There was Keith Moon, Buddy Rich. But there was nothing about Mitch Mitchell. I said I couldn't believe it. I told my wife. So I I started it with really a couple pictures. Um, it's my, some of my friends, my drum students. I've had a lot of drum students over the years, and then it's 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 zoomed into what it's. It's what it is now, but musicians from all over the world, uh, drummers, family members, friends, people that knew Mitch. And um, 
the Mitch Mitch Fan Club was founded Sunday morning, July 7th. Dozens and hundreds of Mitch fans worldwide quickly began to join and post comments, remembrances of pictures, which now comprise the largest collection of Mitch Mitchell pictures on the internet. Hmm. So it, in, uh, in a year ago, in September 18th, on the 50th anniversary of Jimmy's passing, it, it occurred to me, what, do, what would it be like to recreate one of the Mitch kits? So I decided to build an exact replica of, of Mitch's 1967 silver sparkle kit. And, that, and by January of, of 2021, uh, 20, I'm sorry, by 2020, I had an exact replica of Mitch's 67 silver sparkle. So, um, because I, you know, I had seen various pictures. Now, the 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 big, the five hundred pound gorilla, of course, is the sixty eight natural maple kit. I I spent three years trying to find one, but the problem was they were all drilled, mm. all had sh- had had um, spurs. They, yeah. There was no such thing as a virgin bass drum unless it was a marching. Finally, right. my local dealer, um, Jeff Lee at Resurrection Drums here in South Florida, he said, "Kevin, you're going to have to bite the bullet. You really need to get." a modern version of this kit. He said, I tell you, I tell you what, the Ludwig um, Legacy Maple is, is three-ply with reinforcement hoops. He said, that, that is a kit that's the closest you're ever going to get. So I ordered it. It was delivered uh, January of 2020, and then I, I spent three days demodernizing it, <laughs> removing all the modern uh, stuff, uh, the, 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 the grommets, the, the backing of the lugs. I had to change the tension rods. It, it, and then I had a brand new. This, this is a four thousand dollar drum set. Yeah, and I had to drill, drill, drill into it. <laughs> That's got to be a weird feeling. Uh, but you got to do what you got to do. It shows your dedication to uh, authenticity. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and a lot of these things is you know I basically had to trust Mitch. You know, when when, when all else fails, what would Mitch do? So. I said, okay, well, just, you know, and it, it was, she knew exactly where things were supposed to go, the drilling positions of the, the tom mounts and all that sort of thing. And it works. It really works. Yeah. It's, it's, I can't tell you what it's like to go to a drum show and have three Mitch Mitchell replicas <laughs> and see young people playing them I and people going, it's just, it's, it's phenomenal. It's living history. We have a big, you, you saw the big posters in back there with yeah. all the gear because drummers are such uh, gear, gear, um, gear heads or gear aficionados you know yeah absolutely it's it's awesome and i i do like that it's mitch mitchell too it's not i mean there's buddy rich there's gene krupa there's john bonham there's these guys i mean mitch mitchell is 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 kind of his own cool little i don't know he he fits right in there he's not the most uh loud personality that that is uh you know has these famous stories he lived a longer life than a lot of the guys which really sometimes if you if you pass away when you're 30 or 32 then um you become that becomes a part of your legend but he lived a pretty long life and i think you're doing a great thing um spreading the knowledge yeah well thank you very much my my, a little bit about my background um I was a self, originally a self-taught drummer like a lot of us, uh, starting inspired by the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show in February of 64, just like Gary, my, my buddy Gary Astridge, yep. who's uh, Ringo's curator. Yep. And self-taught on the road, I know it sounds hard to believe, on the road when I was 17 years old with all of the people at the international show. That year, we performed at 26 of the same venues that the experience had, had, had played, and we sometimes missing them by a week. True. 
and that both we talked about the uh, 69 and um, uh, 69 and 70. Wow. Uh, then I got out, went to college, got a uh, partial, uh, got a degree. Then I joined the United States Marine Drum and Bugle Corps in Washington, D.C. They went to their drum corps school. Mm. They finally taught me how to hold a pair of six correctly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, graduated from the University of Wyoming, of all places, and then, um, you know, moved to Miami, South Florida, and I've been here ever since. was a high school history teacher, playing a lot of gigs. But you know, I I would watch I would watch uh, when the internet came out, and I I would I would go to eBay and look at all these cool parts, you know, and see pictures of Mitch and look at the little the, the swivelmatics. I'd be sitting in my in, in a lunch break and uh, looking at it. What are you doing? I'm I'm looking at a uh, swivelmatic uh, thing for sale on eBay. People were like, "What?" <laughs> so it, it it was it was slowly evolving, evolving. I guess you don't you you do work this out almost unconsciously. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, hey, you, you could do this. Yeah. You, you could actually buy these parts. Now, now, the trick is, the difficulty is, of course, finding mint condition parts. Because if I'm going to if I'm going to do replicas of, of the sets that are brand new, I got to somehow find 1960s hardware that looks new. That was the ch- that's the big challenge. Yeah. Now, now speaking of replicas, this this is where I looked at it, and I talked to Gary Asher's about this. Who's really I divide replica drums into three categories. There is historic replicas, which are the actual A uh, era. 60, if you're doing Gringo, it's got to be 60s stuff, all 60s stuff, hardware mm-hmm. and drums. Then there's, if you can't find it, then, you, you, then you're going to have to go to a cosmetic replica. It's going to be, the, it's going to look like it, but it, it might be a 1975 Tom. And then there's a, a mix of, would be, it would be historic and cosmetic. The 68 kit is the drums are modern 2021 20, drums. Everything else is historic. So there's historic, cosmetic, and historic cosmetic mix. Hmm. Yeah, which you've had to do a bit of a bit of everything, right? Yeah, each, each set is really that that the 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 60 69. Uh, Black Panther Woodstock kit is is, is is absolutely historic. Everything's from that era. Hmm. Everything. So cool, man. Well, okay. So this is. I mean, we could talk all day. There's so much to talk about with Mitch. Which with uh, I, I love doing these biography episodes. It's been a while since I've d- done one. Um, what's the best way for people to join the fan club to see what you're doing to keep up with your shows? All that you know, all that good stuff. Join the family, like Ludwig says so so famously. Well, <laughs> of course, you can you can go to to Mitch Mitchell Fan Club on Facebook and something new that my brother and I have started. It's called MitchDrummer.com. That's a website that goes beyond just Facebook, and that's it's, it's growing. We have Mitch Mitchell merchandise there, uh, sound samples. So Mitch Drummer is is brand new. It's only about a month old. Great, and it's 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 growing and growing and growing. Uh, we'll list our drum schedules the the first drum show we're going to for sure is it will be in may the chicago show i've already booked a uh, couple of booths there yeah we went out to tacoma washington uh back in august during a record heat wave and for a very small show but the important thing about that show is we actually got to meet the people at hendrix um experience hendrix llc their main drum guy is mike musburger he pretty much uh uh became fast friends he joined the fan club we were ske- my brother and i was scheduled my brother keith and i was scheduled to go to, to, the, to the hendrix vaults in seattle and see all the original stuff but i had to come back on a kind of an emergency and we'll be we'll be going out there but that was a wonderful experience because we had the official unofficial blessing of uh, the hendrix people out there and 
in Seattle. That's great. Um, and also, it was revealed to us that there were a few discrepancies in the 69 kit that, we, that nobody really is aware of. Now, it, it, in, my, in my high praise and thanks to Mike Musburger out there in Seattle, I sent the two missing parts on Mitch's actual Woodstock kit that had been stripped uh, for the Gretsch 1970 kit. He was missing the, the center, center plate for the Toms, and he was missing um, the um, the knobby alarm tom bracket. So I sent him. I sent them brand not brand new, but mint condition parts, so that Mitch's kit out there that's missing those two parts are now fully is fully restored. Hmm. So that's great. Wow. Well, man, this has been. Uh an awesome look at Mitch Mitchell's life and I hope everyone's enjoyed it. And, um, again, go to mitchdrummer.com and just really, I think a great place for everything is on Facebook, Mitch Mitchell fan club. You'll find it pretty easily if you, if you search for it. So, um, yeah, on that note, uh, I want to thank major Simon for joining us today and sharing his immense knowledge and passion, which is very contagious. And, um, I think the best thing everyone can do is go and listen to some Mitch Mitchell, put on some Jimi Hendrix songs today and enjoy it. Well, well Bart, thank you very much uh, for it's my heart, my honor to be here. And uh, to, you folks have showed such dedication, devotion to the history of drumming in so many facets, way beyond anything else that's there. There will be coming soon uh, a, a YouTube channel dedicated first to Mitch and then eventually other drummers. The big thing is if you want to play the Mitch style, you're going to have to really woodshed those rudiments Yeah, and, and, and listen to the right guys. Absolutely. Well, this is a great starting point so people can go, go practice their rudiments. All right, Major Simon, thank you for joining me today. And I look forward to meeting you in person at the next Chicago show in May of 2022. Thank you very much. There is a possibility we might be at the UK drum show in March in Liverpool. We're working on it. Awesome. Well, good luck with everything. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at drum history and please share rate and leave a review and let me know topics that you would like to learn about the future until next time. Keep on learning.